Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Looking at the GLCO Go, that's your global commodity screen here. I'm just looking at wheat trading in Chicago. It was below 800 just a you know, couple of weeks ago, and here we are at 1134 for wheat. So that goes to bread, that goes to beer, that goes to a lot of stuff. Commodities are ripping, so we figured we need to check in with Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, what are we seeing in your space these days? What's going on? Uh, hey, Paul. Well, bread and beer, I like that with wheat. The, the key thing is it's, it's, there's only one thing that matters. It's this war and the potential supply disruptions. And you mentioned wheat. I'm glad you did, because to me, that's part of the key thing where I fully expect we're probably going to have some sustained issues with supply disruptions, but it's an absolute boom for the Corn Belt U.S. farmers. Now, that's the good side, but that will come on and expect massive supply coming from the U.S. this year, most notably in corn and soybeans. But the big picture is crude oil. And what's unique about crude oil, it looks mm. almost exactly the same as it did this time, March, 2008. It crossed above $100, it went to 145 and ended the year around 40 I suspect that's the risk of a rhyme, and it means similar for other risk assets like the stock market. By the way, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about you, Mike, the other day. <laughs> if corn is becomes so valuable that we decide to use it solely for food, is it possible you guys can take it out of my gasoline? <laughs> <laughs> I figured you'd go there. Well, that's very unlikely because the problem is it's still well below the highs, all-time highs, and about 40% of the crop. They're just going to produce much more corn. Remember, this country, a lot of countries still pay their – we do. We pay our producers not to produce. So I think that's going to change. This is a war economy now. It means if the U.S. can pick up its supply of commodities, which I fully expect it will, it's going to help save the world from this oppressive government in Russia. So by, the, by the way, how do, you, how do you guys in the Midwest uh, square that circle? Because everybody I know – out in flyover country, including, you know, I'm from there, my family's from there, um, is very, you know, traditionally conservative, free market capitalist. And yet that they all get behind these like communist subsidies of farmers. How is that okay? It's survival. Um, it's survival because that's the problem with the corn belt. You just look, the average price of corn for the last five years was on four, three, four dollars a bushel. Now it's up near seven, eight. And bar farmers are just barely breaking even. Thank God for the ethanol mandate because it helped them make some money. Now they're making real money. So I think a lot of subsidies come back. Well, this is just part of that major transmogrification of society when, you know, 90 percent of humans used to, to feed the others. Right, everybody else, now it's only 1%, and it's still can de decline because of rapidly advancing technology. But the Corn Belt is going to crush it in this situation, and so will shale, U.S. liquefied, U.S. energy, liquefied natural gas. To me, that whole area is going to do very well to yeah. help save the world for democracy. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. As always, I always appreciate getting your perspective. Mike McGlone, he I is a senior longer. I had so many more questions. I know, I know. we got a busy schedule here. I feel like it's an antitrust issue, right, for farmers. The small family farm should be growing the food. We should bust down these big monopolies. And I wanted to ask him, because we're talking about wheat, when are we going to see weed? Weed? Traded on Weed in traded Chicago. on the Chicago, yeah. uh, in the Chicago pits. Uh, I don't know, but Mike, if it's there, Mike will trade it for sure. All right, let's switch gears. Let's take a look at these markets here. I want to bring in Ted Oakley, founder and managing partner of Oxbow Advisors. Ted, um, 
give us a sense of kind of how you guys there at Oxbow are thinking about trading and investing in a world where we've got a real shooting war over in Europe. How do you think about that? Well, for us right now, I mean, you know, we've been carrying uh, quite a bit of cash now for some time, and we still have it. We think it's a bit early. Uh, you know, we really feel like the markets are, will be coming at you the next three or four months. And so just between everything going on between the Fed and just what you mentioned over there, uh, and the, the real point is that uh, if you look at energy and food, they're, they spiked to a point that they were like only two other times. <clears throat> Both times we went in a recession, so we run a fairly high risk right now of um, of moving into the recession, especially talking about your former guest there with commodities and energy and the, and the like. So how does the uh, how does the Fed handle that? Do we expect an about face? They raise rates a couple times and then go back. Well, unfortunately, you know I've watched the Fed since Paul Volcker, so I, the thing about it is that probably more than likely they're always looking backwards. Unfortunately, they don't. They don't. It's hard for them to look forward because they can't get out on a limb on it. So that's the problem. And my guess is you're going to have a, you know, your prints and obviously in January, February, are going to be you know fairly high inflation numbers. But you get into base effects in April, May, June, July, they won't be that high. But I think the bigger thing is when they're headed to, say, uh, when you're going into a situation where you have a slowing economy, and they're raising rates. That's that's sort of a disaster. So I'm expecting now that by the end, by the last half of the year, that they'll be at least changing, uh, changing their rhetoric. They may not be, I, I can't see them ever getting to six point six raises this year. All right. Given that backdrop there, Ted, how are you positioning your portfolios here? Um, again, given the geopolitical issues that have risen over the past couple of weeks, uh, given what we've heard from this Federal Reserve uh, and this president in the State of the Union address, how are you thinking about your portfolios? Well, in a couple of ways, I'll just split them between our income portfolios and, and growth portfolios. But on the on the income side, we have just <clears throat> over the last few weeks, we <clears throat> excuse me, we've taken up um, a fairly large position in the twenty and thirty year treasury. Um, we we really we really feel like that they'll those rates will all come down uh, eventually over the next six to twelve months, particularly the next six months. And we think people are really positioned wrong on that. So we've, for the first time in a long time, we've pushed out and bought a fairly large position in the 20- and 30-year Treasury. And in addition, uh, if you look at two-year and three-year munis, they've finally gone to a point where you can move out a money market fund and buy that for, you know, one and a quarter or so. For So that's changing things. And then on the equity side, we just have quite a bit of liquidity. It's a bit early for us, even on the growth companies we own, they're going to have to get um, at least a bigger discount than they are for us to be able to use that cash right now. We think um, we think there's probably you know to just get back to a normal <clears throat> excuse me a normal multiple. I would guess you would have to go you know at least another ten or fifteen percent. Ted, I just wonder uh, quickly. Only have about about twenty thirty seconds, but um, I know you're very active in charity work. Um, down there, what do you think about what we see now in Ukraine? You know, it's really sad for me because I know uh, I always think about the kids. You know, because that's what the kids are. What are your next? You know, that's that's your future. And I always worry about not only their future but the future they would have for somebody else. And I know a lot of people really want to help them and and uh, 
and and my uh, I, I I would do that as well. But I I just think that's a sad situation. I wish it was different for the for the for the mothers and the kids and the families. Um, right. And you sort of see how it's going to end. It's too bad. Yeah. All right, Ted, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective. Ted Oakley, founder and managing partner of Oxbow Advisors. All right, we've got the waning period, hopefully, of this pandemic. Uh, We've got rising inflation. And now we also have geopolitical uncertainty in the form of uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, a lot of folks are trying to get a sense of what that means for the outlook for these markets. Let's bring in Anna Hahn, Vice President Equity Strategist at Wells Fargo. So, Anna, how does the, this war in Ukraine affect your calculus, if at all, as you think about where these markets can go? So, absolutely. I think it really shifts the picture here. The direct impact of the situation between Russia and Ukraine, the U.S. is not that exposed. When you look at corporates in the U.S., we don't have that much earnings exposure to them. But it's more the ripple effects that we're concerned about. So you think about how the Fed looks to be more conservative due to that geopolitical uncertainty. And that brings in the point of probably longer-term inflationary pressures due to the crude oil and the natural gas supply that Russia supplies. So you put that all together, and that's going to impact yields. So you see nominals coming down 18 bips. The real yields are down 40 basis points from their peak. I think that's the picture here that we need to focus on. How much longer do you think we're going to see this kind of inflation? Because we've been talking to supply chain people for months, and um, you know they thought maybe in the first half things would get a little better. Now the second half, now we're seeing some people say out into 2023, and that just threatens um, – prices out that long as well. You bring up a great point. When it comes to supply chain and lead times, we did see hints that perhaps the worst was over, that, you know, it wasn't going to suddenly all, you know, funnel through, but that the bottlenecks were easing. But inflationary pressures are not just a supply chain. It's energy prices. It's the excess demand that we've been having. So perhaps a rate hike would address that demand directly, but energy prices and supply chains are things that even if the Fed hikes, it's not going to attack directly to ease those pressures. I think that these inflationary pressures could last a bit longer than we initially suspected coming into the situation. And with that, uh, again, yields are reacting to that. The equity markets are reacting to that. So I think that's where you see sort of this give back in the value versus growth trade. So what are you telling your clients now, Anna? Are you telling them to kind of favor some core underlying growth stories or sticking perhaps with that cyclical trade that's worked so well over the past, you know, not 18 months or so? I would say first and foremost, always depends on the time frame of my client. Uh, if you're looking more longer term, like 8, 12, 24 months, I still think that there is a cyclical trade to be played here. But for the short term, more tactical and more nimble folks, I wouldn't tell them to chase this market. We're down uh, you know, about 10% or so. That's something that we called very uh, coming into the year that it was a possibility. I wouldn't chase a market, but at the same time, I do think that sort of stalling in nominal yields and especially the pullback in real yields could be an opportunity for small cap growth. Small cap growth has been very oversold, technical balance is possible, and especially with some of the small cap short covering that we might see and the Fed uh, being a little less hawkish or, you know, somewhat dovish given the geopolitical situation, I think all that could bode well for a tactical trade in small cap growth. How do you model in the geopolitics? I mean, um, 
you strike me as someone who is very scientific. Um, just, <laughs> just looking at, you know, uh, Anna, by the way, spent the last few years at Yale studying, uh, what, what was it? Supermassive black holes. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which sounds totally cool, but I'm guessing that you model things a lot. And how do you factor in this kind of stuff? I think the important thing, especially when there's uncertainty, is to consider your scenarios uh, and, and also put in a probability to that as best you can. So, you know, our main base case, we had a guest speaker who was a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. And some of the base cases he laid out were very interesting. One of them being the main possibility was we get this Balkan-style compromise with Russia. In other words, they're going to gain some portion of Ukraine in exchange for stability. Another case, a little less likely, is that Putin backs down following some strong Ukrainian resistance. Even less likely, Ukraine is bombed into submission, leading to this Cold War II scenario uh, with massive sanctions. And then the least likely, as he laid out, was that perhaps Putin is removed from power as the fight drags on and sanctions really just uh, throttle Russia. Now, again, the most uh, the biggest probability that he laid out was the Balkan-style compromise. So that's what I do. I look at the possible scenarios whatever is most likely. And from there, we can assign really what do we believe or measure to be the equity reaction. And I think here is the question of really inflationary pressure slowing down the Fed and how the yield move is going to uh, uh, affect equity markets. I think that's our focus for now and also on equity risk. All right, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your perspective there. Anna Hahn, Vice President, Equity Strategist at Wells Fargo. Yeah, I don't know how you model in war i mean i guess you it just kind of goes to global gdp demand I, and uh, you I, know I, I don't know how either but i also don't know how you figure out what's going on in a super massive black hole yes exactly and uh that's why anna seems like the perfect person to ask that question and uh probably that's why wells fargo thought she was the perfect person to hire for the job yeah to be an equity strategist at uh wells fargo It is that time of the day, that time of the week. We bring Barry Ritholtz on to talk about um, what's going on in markets and well, many other things. Um, Barry, I think, you know, we're kind of focused on the Fed right now, although yesterday, you know, the smartest people in Washington questioned him. Now he's going in front of the Senate. What do you take from the the position that he's in? It's not enviable, right? They were behind the curve and now the curve has changed. Were they really so behind the curve? I, I I would challenge your premise because well we have inflation at more than seven percent. I don't right, think a so, Fed should let that happen. So that right? and it's probably going to be an eight percent print the next time we see it. But what is raising rates going to do to make more semiconductors available? What is raising rates going to do to untangle the supply chain? The the most important thing that we can do to bring the demand supply balance back into normal is to get people out of their houses and and get people you know reopen the economy so we're not just buying stuff we go back to the 61% 39% service versus goods economy the the pandemic and the lockdown forced us all to become goods consumers instead of service consumers so yes for sure there's been wage increases there's been a lot of things that have taken place where the Fed has some impact, but, you know, the best estimates are around two-thirds of these increases. The Fed is not going to do anything about it. When when people are buying homes by liquidating crypto, 
you're not, which, which by the way, 11% of new home buyers are doing, you're not going to stifle inflation with higher rates. That's not to say we shouldn't see the Fed move towards more normalization, but it's still a very different situation than normal times when the Fed raises rates, eventually causes a recession, and we end up uh, with things going back to normal. Barry, <coughs> we now have a hot war in Europe. What does that mean for equities? So historically, uh, and I'm assuming you're referring to the Business Week piece that we published yes, yesterday, sir. historically, uh, when we see these ge- geopolitical events, sometimes it's a war, sometimes it's terrorism, sometimes it's an assassination attempt, or successful or not, there tends to be this emotional spasm. There tends to be this knee-jerk reaction, and investors panic a little bit. And going back to Pearl Harbor attack that brought the United States into World War II, historically we learned that that's a terrible strategy, that what typically happens is that markets wobble a little bit, and then they go about back to doing what they were doing, uh, their prior trend before the event took place. The worst of these events, the World War II, one of the worst wars in human history, uh, markets sold off for, uh, took about six months before markets bottomed, and less than a year later, markets were back to their, U.S. markets were back to their prior highs. So if the worst case scenario is World War II, and it's a year, year and a half later, uh, think about the GDP of Ukraine. Think about the economic impact of Russia. The, the reason these events don't really affect markets is because they're too small in terms of global GDP to uh, really impact corporate revenue and, and profits. And, and so the markets well, kind of shake them off. And I hope we stay, hopefully uh, they stay that small, right? I mean, the, the concern is um, and that not just the war in Ukraine is hot, but um, that the Cold War between the U.S. and Russia becomes a hot war. That's, I guess, the nuclear option. Um, there's no playbook for that. That Well, you know, it, <laughs> if there's a nuclear war, I think the value of your long-term stocks and bonds becomes quite secondary at that point. I mean, the, look, did you read um, Stravitas's book, uh, 2034? I thought it was awesome. And there were – I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but there are some nuclear strikes in there. Yeah, and no, it's, it's certainly an option. Look, the, to me, the bigger concern is not – uh, the idea of a nuclear conflagration, because that means, you know, my, my equity portfolio is irrelevant. The bigger concern, or the more realistic or probable concern, is that this spills from Ukraine into Belarus into Eastern Europe. And if you have boots on the ground and a, a hot war between Europeans and Russia, well, at that point, that can really become very, very problematic. And I think... The, the uncertainty around war isn't that we don't know what's going to happen. It's that things can happen that just are not imaginable. Well, I mean, even if we don't get that far, did you? I know that Masters of Business is probably the most successful podcast that we have here. But there's another podcast, Odd Lots, and they had Zoltan sure. Pozar on the other day. Did you hear that? He was talking about the possibility of the dollar no longer uh, remaining the world reserve currency. Um, you know... 
Send me all of your worthless U.S. dollars for proper disposal, and I will take <laughs> care of that. I have been literally hearing that my entire adult life. So let's stop and consider your alternatives. Well, but 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 you you understand why, right? Because no, I don't. Because, I've, I've, you know, when because, people have been wrong for half a century, you have to stop and say, you know, because even a broken large clock is right like, twice a year. If large economies like, and I'll go ahead and say the Soviet Union, even though I know it's not that right. anymore, or um, the People's Republic of China, if they realize that the currency they rely on um, can just be turned off by another country or another culture, they might decide to try and use something else. All of a sudden, these rubles are backed by dollars. All of a sudden, um, you know, the yuan is digital. So, you know, maybe we see some some change there. So, so change is constant. You can assume that change is always going always gonna to happen. However, so when we look out, and I don't like to look out 20, 30 years because events have a tendency of getting in the way of those forecasts. But just stop and think about this for a second. Your alternatives are the yen. We, no one's really talking about that because Japan's economy and markets have been you know, doing so poorly since 1989. The euro, which is problematic, holding that group of very disparate countries um, together is really a challenge. The, the Chinese yuan, who, who when China is not happy with um, how their corporate sector is doing, they just demolish them. Look what they did to Alibaba. Look right. what they did to Tencent. Who is going to willingly say, oh, sure, I trust the dictators and the communists in China? And, you know, we, people talk about Bitcoin, um, obviously all over the map over the past couple of days. To me, the most interesting challenge to the dollar is going to be a stable coin, not a Bitcoin, but a right. stable coin that's backed by some consortium of central banks uh, like like a combination of the old trilateral commission, like the right. EU, Japan, and the United States. If a group of those three country areas yeah. say, we're going to allow a, a free translation of the stable coin into dollars, into euros, dollars, or yen, yeah. uh, and I think what that does is that tracks yep. it. Uh, look, if, if you're an expert in central bank behavior, if you're an expert in global monetary systems, which clearly Putin yep. is not. He might have thought he was, but he's not. There's, right. there's nothing different that was done. It was just the first time since World War II mm. that everybody got together and said, oh, that country is a rogue nation like Iran, like North Korea, and so we're going to put them into the penalty box. This isn't... This isn't it. It goes back to Cuba. We're going to have to leave it there, my friend, and because of time. But we always appreciate getting your thoughts. We'll Barry pick Ritholtz. up on Cuba next time. <laughs> yeah, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.